2: From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to our latest episode, which is the latest and last in a mini series we're running for the podcast a series of debates and discussion around the ranking of top drivers from some of Formula One's most famous teams. And this time around, we're discussing one of F1's most famous, most successful names, but which these days is absent from the grid. It's Lotus. Uh, but before we dive into our top 10 ranking of the Lotus F1 racers, let's once again ask the person whose constant list writing is the inspiration for this series to go over just how he puts them together. Uh, as you'll have noticed, I'm sort of varying up my question on this to Autosports Chief Editor Kevin Turner as we get further into this series. But Kev, given this is the last episode of this mini-series, I wondered if you could maybe give us a hint of what top 10s, what motorsport lists you've maybe got in mind to produce next. I think you did you did mention one on the on the, on the previous episode on the Mercedes top 10
3: top 10 pre-war Grand Prix drivers I mean I haven't started one you won't be supposed to know I'm kind of thinking about these sort of things somewhere in my brain all the time uh, what are the next ones well I'm always working on top 10 great drives by certain uh, certain people so I think I've done about 20 of them now over the last six years um and um yeah I'm, I'm working on working on a few of those at the moment i'm I'm hoping to get hold of alan Prost for his i'd love to speak to him about his um and alan Jones uh Gilles Villeneuve yeah, there are quite a few uh one Manuel fanjo is one of one of the ones i haven 't done i've done most of the of the fifties and sixties but I need to do him so i've got a few of the, those going on, but I dare say uh, i'll be hit by inspiration or something will happen for example we've got uh, Miami coming up haven't we later in the season first time that we'll have a second Grand Prix in America since 1984 so I could do a top 10 greatest
2: F1 races in America for example so well, I've, okay, I've got a, a topical question for you based on that in terms of you know greatest drives from, from certain drivers does Lewis Hamilton's 2021 Brazilian Grand Prix beat the 2008 British Grand Prix I think there's no. a case for it. No, he doesn't No, no it why will, not?
3: I am doing a revised. Li- That's a good point. I'd forgotten about that. I am also doing a revised Lewis Hamilton list, which I think is about the fourth time I've had to revise it, which tells you something about his career. I did the first one when he hit 50 wins, which now seems laughably uh, low and long ago. But uh, no, it will, it will get into the list. Um, I don't think it'll. I'm not sure it'll crack top three. I think it's going to be third or fourth but yeah it'll be it, it will definitely be in there and in fact um I might break my own rule and make I think Lewis Hamilton has now earned the right to have more than a 10 in his best wins list so I might uh, I might extend it a bit um because I've probably looked at 25 or 30
2: serious contenders for him now now that he's he's uh, he's gone past the century well, I'm more than happy to come on and be a guest of uh, of, of the podcast, assessing the you know the the, the reassessed list of Lewis Hamilton's uh, greatest list. Because I thought that Brazilian Grand Prix, when you add up uh, you know the sprint race and everything in it, and the pressure he was under and, and things like that, absolutely terrific, absolutely terrific. Now, before we get stuck into Kev's ranking of the Lotus drivers, there's just one more thing to do, and that's introduce my second guest on this podcast. Once again, back for more. It's Autosports Matt Q. Now, Matt, I'd say you're quite the motorsport history buff, so. What does the name Lotus mean to you?
4: I do, I do obviously love my motorsport history, but I have to say Lotus to me, uh, and this is this is showing off a little bit, but it means, and it's from the very recent past, but um, I think still probably the greatest day of my career uh, so far, my short career, cause I'm ever so young and uh, still up and coming. But when we, when we did the track test at, at Hethel and um, we had, we had, we um, had, the type 25 the the 49 the 72 and the 79 and and seeing those four cars um you know that we we had a track there essentially it was all put on for us with with the great help of uh classic team lotus and and that is just such a standout day there's the noises you know getting up close and personal with those cars sort of understanding understanding the history of each particular chassis as well rather than just you know the lineages of of, you know type 25 whatever but understanding that that was R4 that you know that was a car that Clark had won the gold cup in and that you know without, without waffling on too much that was such a special day that that's Pretty much what comes to mind straight away when I think of Lotus now is having seen those cars in person and heard them being driven pretty well by uh, by our colleague Ben Anderson.
2: Don't think you're very successful in not waffling on too much there, but anyway, it was uh, it was uh, it was a an, good an anecdote to recall back there, Matt. Um, but. Let's get into the top 10 ranking, Kev, that you've done for the Lotus drivers. Uh, once again, for each entry, you'll explain uh, why particular driver is in which slot and, Q, queue, you're going to examine uh, Kev's reasoning and logic. Then, although plenty of them will come up as we go through the list, we'll assess the drivers that didn't quite make the cut. But starting off, shockingly as ever, at number 10. At number 10 in this Lotus list, it's Elio De Angelis. Uh, raced for Lotus between 1980 and 1985. Started 90 races, won twice, no titles. Kev, why is De Angelis at number 10?
3: Well, picking number 10 is always difficult um, because obviously by definition you're excluding people. But um, it was, I think, between uh, Elio and Nigel Mansell for number 10 slot. And of course, they were teammates at Lotus. Pretty evenly matched probably over that period. Um, I think probably, I guess the reason, there are a couple of reasons why Elio um, gets the nod. I think probably if you think Nigel Mansell, you think, you know, you think Mansell Williams, right? Yeah, maybe even Ferrari, but you don't really think of him at Lotus, even though he did spend a long time there. He didn't really break out as a as a Formula One top liner um, until uh, until he left and went to to Williams. Whereas uh, Elio did win two races for them, um, and he had a brilliant uh, brilliant nineteen eighty four season where he finished third in the championship behind the dominant McLarens and ahead of Mansell, and then he actually. He compared pretty well um to Ed and Senna when Senna joined in eighty five Now I think Elio knew which way the wind was blowing, very much like Daniel Ricciardo knew when Max Verstappen was at Red Bull and that he needed to go elsewhere um but he you know he took he took a pole um and he actually only ended up five points behind, Obviously Senna was a you know, dramatic you know inexperienced exciting talent and was always going to be the sort of the future for the team um but elio was not was not embarrassed by him, so you know he stood up well against Senna and Mansell. At Lotus was there a long time, uh, and he he also ended their long drought with his his victory in the Austrian Grand Prix in 1982, which is a fantastic finish. It's on you can you can find the find the video beats Keke Rosberg by five hundredths of a second. That's Lotus's first win for four years, so quite a significant moment. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, just a, I think a, an all round likable
2: likable guy that did a good job for the team. So he gets that tenth spot. Now, Matt, we know from previous uh, podcasts that we've done in this mini series. This is your favourite number. This is your favourite selection, number ten. What would you? What have you got to say about Elio Di Angelis taking the number ten spot on the Lotus list?
4: Oh, again, I'll settle into my role of being devil's advocate and trying to pick holes, if any, in Kev's reasoning and logic. So I'm going to return to a statistic I used in a Ferrari podcast, and that's the win ratio. So, uh, I hope you've done it, it as a percentage win. this time. Do you know what I have I have, have uh, good, to, good. To, to, to two decimal places as well. Uh which uh tested my rounding ability. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointingly it doesn't come that close where I have to get to uh both decimal places to decipher between drivers. But anyway, De Angelis had uh two wins from ninety races, so that's a two point one uh percent win ratio, which is which is the lowest in this list. So yes, of, of the names in this list he should be lowest down. Kev's already explained his his region, reasoning for not giving that tenth spot to uh, Nigel Mansell, which I get. I think you know he had a couple of poles in across '84 and '85, but I think you know it's probably yeah not remembered that strongly that DeAngelis had had probably the measure of one of the quickest Grand Prix drivers of all time over over those couple of seasons. Uh, but two names I kept coming back to and was thinking, could we make a strong case for? And that's Siffert winning um, the '968. British Grand Prix, and the reason I think that counts is we'll come onto a name further down this list, and we're including sort of Rob Walker cars for 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 this for this debate. Another one was um, Gunnar Nielsen as well, uh, particularly you know one one in Spa, and his his strike rate for you know obviously uh, clear reasons was was cut incredibly short. He you know he didn't do many races, but wins and podiums. So those two I'd probably be looking to to put in in place of Elio De Angelis just because they they did as much quicker
3: I mean I think that uh, it was older by the way not Spa that particularly year that, that Nilsson won his uh, won his Grand Prix but and um, uh, actually did did make my top 10 list of one hit wonder wins another list I can't believe how many of these I've done um, but yeah I think I think with Siffa I'm, I'm a big fan of his anyone that was able to race a Porsche nine one seven uh, gets my vote um, but yes the, it it was a, yeah, it was it was a great win, but I don't think you would say he contributed as much to Lotus as a whole as uh, De Angelis did. I think that longevity has to be part of it. So while strike rate, obviously, the more races you do, the less likely it is to be high. Um, I think that the fact that you've contributed to the team um, a little bit like when we talked about the McLaren one with David Coulthard being there for nine years. You know, they don't hire and keep hold of you know. You, you you useless waste of space. Like they're contributing to the team and doing something. Elio stayed there for you know for a long time. Um so I think that works in his favour. Ah, Gunnar Nilsson is is an interesting one, and his Grand Prix he did win was was very well taken. But again, I don't think I think that the build up, if you like, at that time was a lot down to Mario Andretti, who we will get to um, further on in this this list. I don't think Gunnar had yet got to the point of being able to perhaps con- contribute, and he's a he's a he's a sad what if about motorsport. Um, uh, actually, so is Elio DeAnders because obviously he then did go to Brabham and got killed. But I think he'd already done his contribution to Lotus, whereas. Gunner hadn't kind of got there to the same degree yet.
2: Well, let's move on to the driver at number nine. It's Innis Ireland. He drove for Lotus between 1959 and 1961, for Team Lotus, that is, 1962 and 1963 and 1965 as a privateer. His Lotus races, in terms of the World Championship only, it's number 36, and he took one victory, no titles. Kev, why is Ireland at number nine?
3: So to start with, he was tenth. I had him. I had him at tenth, and he was going to be there purely on the basis of being the first, uh, being the driver that gave Team Lotus, as opposed to Lotus, the constructor, uh, its first World Championship Grand Prix victory was at the nineteen sixty-one U.S. Grand Prix. Um, but then I, I did a bit more digging, and I thought that that was perhaps a little bit unfair because he was—he's probably a bit forgotten, I think now. But actually, was a very good, well-respected driver of his era. Um, and he did finish fourth in the 1960 driver's standings with, with Lotus. So it wasn't just that one hit moment. Um, he also won uh, some non-championship races. Um, in particular, the, the 19, 1961 Solitude Grand Prix was a fantastic, uh, fantastic fight against the factory Porsches. So if you think that this is a time at Lotus before, um, yeah, before Jim Clark is sort of into his stride, before they've really broken through, um, I think his contribution and, and winning that winning that US Grand Prix meant that then he deserved to be, be on the list. And I also, I guess maybe I did let emotion creep in a little bit in that I thought that it was a bit harsh that his reward for winning that race at the end of 61 was to effectively lose his drive for the following year. And given who ended up at Lotus, I mean, it was initially going to be John Surtees and then it was Jim Clark, I think you would struggle to argue that that Colin Chapman made the wrong decision, but I just thought that always seems a that seems a bit harsh if you've just finally had that breakthrough and then it's like, Thank you very much and goodbye. Matt, are you happy with that uh,
2: explanation from Kev?
4: Yep, happy with that uh, win ratio for what it's worth of two point eight percent. So uh, a little bit higher than Leo Giangolis, nowhere near the others on this list. Although um, there is there is a, a shock. It sounds like clickbait now, but there is a there is a shock to stay tuned for at number four in terms of win ratio. So you know, keep uh, keep listening, and we'll come back to that. But um, there's there's no way I don't think you can argue Ireland any any higher up this list
2: where well, you giving away exactly where that shock is coming in. But anyway, we look forward to it coming up later on uh, in any case. Let's move on to the driver at number eight in this list. One of the most famous drivers of all time, although, you know, obviously success comes uh, mainly in Formula One a lot later. At number eight, it's Ayrton Senna. Drove for Lotus between 1985 and 1987. Started 48 races, took six wins, no titles. Kev, why is Senna at number eight?
3: Well, I fear that this is in... We're now into a region of the list that is highly debatable and that I moved around constantly positions or pretty much positions 5 through 8 I think were almost constantly being copied and pasted and then moved again. So it's very difficult and I'm expecting Matt to give me some give me some real trouble over the next few uh, selections. So so it so Senna's in the list because obviously he he is the the driver that comes in and really shows that Lotus can be a force again in the post Colin Chapman era. Chapman died at, at the end of 1982 and they had a, quite a tricky couple of years. Um, but, um, yeah, the, Senna was fantastically fast. The Lotus Renault in qualifying trim was very fast. He had lots of poles. Ultimately, it wasn't as good as a McLaren tag in 85 in the races, and it wasn't as good as a Williams Honda in the races in 86. Um, but Senna was a you know, consistent force in it. He won six Grand Prix, um for Lotus. I would say the reason he's not higher... I think uh, there are a couple. One is that he was still in that in that period where he did make make some errors. Um yeah, you know, he, he still have had a few moments where he, where he had clashes or made mistakes that he perhaps wouldn't have done in his later years at McLaren. Uh and the other one is I think that he was he did do great things for the team, but it was very much on his terms. The other a lot of the other people on this list are team players or built up with the team. For Senna, I think Lotus was a stepping stone towards becoming a a world champion, um, and he was very selfish about it. And that's not a criticism in terms of him, you know, that that was his way, one of his reasons he was successful. But in terms of this list, I think it detracts slightly because, you know, he, he, for example, blocked Derek Warwick's move there, which would surely have been a better team. It would have been a better team for Derek being there. Even though it would have compromised Senna's own uh, own efforts, so I think it was very much Senna first, Lotus second, which is why, uh, which was why I didn't put him at, uh, any higher in this list. Whereas the the very next entry, um, I think was 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 almost the complete opposite. It
1: was it was a team player almost to a fault.
4: Well, Kev, okay, it's a case of ask and ye shall receive because I I will uh, argue Sen is uh, place higher up on this list and, and and not necessarily for what he did in the car although obviously you know um, his wins and eight, eight pole positions uh, in the 97T were hugely impressive but if you look at his contribution that's one of the factors in the, in, in this in in this ranking is you know what they did to what they did to improve the team or, or keep the team competitive. And you think that, you know, um obviously it's post Chapman era now with, with Peter War. You look at uh the drop off after he after he left, you know, they were still third in the constructors table um in what well, in um 80, seven and then the drop off after that with Senna leaving. Uh, the fact that um okay, you know, if you think of Senna and Honda, you think of the success they forged together at McLaren, but it was it was Senna's prowess, if you like, that brokered the deal for for Honda to come in and uh, uh, initially with Lotus, and obviously um, have have Nakajima as as his teammate, who he, he obviously you know smashed, and and that makes him look better again. I just think if you look at basically what what he bought, and then and then also who he was replaced by. So I know I know Kev that uh, in office discussions you sometimes don't. Quite argue the merits um, for for Nelson Piquet Senior as the greatest three-time Formula One world champion of all time, but nevertheless he was immensely well decorated and came in as sort of almost in a template of Senna's Senna's role as as a team leader and was nowhere near as good as sort of as the young pretender. So I think you know those three things. So the results, what happened when Senna left, and and how sort of he he not galvanised probably the wrong word, but helped sort of. You know, maintain the team or build it. I think I think those three criteria probably push him a little bit higher up this list. And I can also add in uh, he got six wins from forty eight races, which is a uh, win ratio of twelve point five percent.
3: I mean, I can't argue. With, I can't argue with any of those points. They're all ver- they're all perfectly valid. So we'll just have to have to see as we go down the next couple as to whether you think that they should be actually dropped dropped after center so we can move him up.
2: Well let's move on to the driver who is immediately in front of center in this list at number seven. it's Ronnie Peterson uh, drove for Lotus between 1973 and 1976 and in 1978. 59 races for Lotus and nine wins no titles Kev. Why is Peterson at number seven?
3: So I think if you speak to people that work with him um, on, and that knew his place in the team, in fact Clive Chapman who helped to uh, helped to arrange that track test that, that Matt was doing that earlier you know everyone loved Ronnie. Um, you know, he was a fantastic character, very popular, no side to him, um, and did play the team game. So in, in 1978, um, yeah, how, how much he did have to let Mario Andretti win, I think he's entirely open to debate. Uh, it's a separate podcast in itself. But the fact is, Mario Andretti put in the effort to develop that car. He'd helped build Lotus into a force again um, with the ground effects cars. And Ronnie accepted that. He was signed as number two and he played that game um, and he helped them win a Constructors' Championship. So that was 1978. But he'd also shown that he, had the, he could do the, 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 heroic, the heroic drives. In like 1973, he was the fastest driver of the season with the Lotus 72. Unreliability let him down. It took him a little while to get into his stride. And ultimately, he lost the World Championship, or Lotus lost the World Championship, really because they were up against Jackie Stewart putting in I think one of the finest campaigns in F1 history I think in most other seasons Emerson Fittipaldi or Ronnie Peterson win that title he then takes three fantastic victories as the Lotus 72 gets more more and more long in the tooth spectacular driver and I think if you think of iconic Formula 1 images a lot of people of a certain age will say Ronnie Peterson sideways at Woodcut in a Lotus 72 so um, he couldn't drive the team forward. He wasn't a set-up development driver, um, but he was a great person to have in the team and he played his part in in uh, in two Constructors' titles and a, and a driver's title for Mario Andretti. So in terms of impact, I thought you know, he had to be there. Yeah, you know, he had to be right up there.
4: This is probably the one I'd swap around with with Senna in particular. So again, you know, as as with these lists, if you argue someone in or change the order, then I think it's only fair that you make a valid case for someone to come down. Uh, although, I, so I hope I hope my argument is valid. But I'm um, obviously a fantastic driver. I you know was uh, watched their Super Sweet documentary that came out and and learned a hell of a lot about about sort of the the person as if you like as as well as the driver and you know prestigious talent. But I think the the thing that you know, I'd argue the case for swapping him in centre and putting Peterson down to um down to uh eighth place is that he he had teammates win championships in the same car and so I think that probably has to detract something. Yes, I know I know there is that debate about how much he, he was sort of forced to let Mario win that uh or Andretti take the championship, but I think Andretti put himself in that position by being the quicker driver. And again with a seven to two it, it was long in the tooth by you know by the time uh Ronnie Peterson was still driving it in sort of seventy five, but it was, it was a car that to as his teammate, took the took the championship in. So I think because it wasn't Peterson doing those feats, you know, I'll, should should effectively uh, a very good but a number two driver go ahead of someone who led the team so emphatically like Senna did.
3: Yeah, I think that's a very fair point and to to argue against myself further. <laughs> um I think that that Matt's point about um you know, Senna being the driving force and in fact he was very key in in pushing things on with the with Honda and also with the active suspension in 1987 he was key in in, in pushing that along and realizing that actually um, despite he'd been the qualifying driver, if you like, for the previous two seasons, he immediately changed tack and went. The strength of this system is making the tires last in the race. So he only has a couple of poles that um, in '87, but he he's um, uh, you know is, is is a factor in the race. He's using that strength. So I think in that sense, you would you could argue Senna ahead of ahead of Peterson. Um, there's the longevity and and the kind of emotional uh, element for for Ronnie that I think works better. Let's not forget he was obviously he was killed in a in a Lotus in the 1978 Italian Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, that that's one of those reasons why. That's what this is one of the reasons why these two kept changing on my original list. So I'm I'm, I'm very happy to cede to Q's uh, argument on that one.
4: Although if Kev did want to argue back at me, perhaps he could look to the win ratio, which I can quote <laughs> here as well. So uh, Peterson uh, nine wins from uh, fifty nine uh, World Championship races, which is a percentage of fifteen point two five, which uh, it pops him sort of three uh, percent higher up than Senna, for what it's worth
2: indeed well moving on to the driver at number six it's sterling moss uh, drove for lotus between 1960 and 1960, 1961 as privateer uh, 12 races in the world championship took four victories no titles kev why is moss at number six
1: so this is really
3: difficult to place because it's he's on the, you're kind of judging him almost than a different criteria because he didn't drive for team lotus so i could have excluded him altogether But that just seemed ridiculous to me because he's the first person to win a World Championship Grand Prix in a Lotus. Um, You know, uh, Matt mentioned Joseph winning for Rob Walker um, in 1968 British Grand Prix. But, um, you know, (laughs) Moss uh, had Rob Walker Lotus 18s and was winning with it way ahead of. Well, the the works team never won with a Lotus 18, a, a World Championship race, and he won four times. And it's not just the fact that he was the first. I would say that two of those wins, um, the Monaco Grand Prix and the the German Grand Prix in 1961, are two of the greatest Grand Prix victories by anyone in a Lotus ever. And it was a privateer car against the all-powerful Ferraris. Um, So, you know, Moss was also one of the first to identify how good Jim Clark was going to be. I think that... I think if... Moss was one of the first to realise that rotating the rear on corner entry in the, in the new mid-engine Grand Prix cars was the way to go. It's now standard practice. And I think that he spotted that Clark was doing something similar. So, um, yeah, he, he's he's very difficult to position on this. But I think just what he achieved in privateer Lotus machinery before Colin Chapman's team had actually got into its stride. Yeah, you know, he he perhaps might have won the world championship in 1960 had a wheel not fallen off his Lotus eighteen at Spa and put him in hospital. Um,
2: so yeah, he, he's uh, he had to be he had to be slap bang in the middle of the list for that reason. Matt, are you happy with Moss at six, or would you be bringing Centre up to this position as well?
4: No, I wouldn't, and I have to say it pains me to say it, but I agree with every every single word Kev said then about you know the the achievement. Only being enhanced because it was a privateer squad, and, and his his drive at Monaco, probably probably his second greatest ever appearance in a car behind uh, behind his Emilia uh, run. So, um, but I, I'm not going to argue him any higher up, and pick it fr- on the. On the basis that everyone else in this list took a world championship title with with Lotus and and uh, and, and Moss did not obviously obviously you know privateer or whatever, but he he didn't with the Lotus car. He did not win the driver's title. Everyone else on this list at least one won.
2: Right, well let's move on to the drivers at number five and number four in this list, and it's it's quite an interesting uh, debate around here. So that's why we're grouping them together. Uh, Kevin will sure explain all in a moment. Uh, at number five, we've got Jochen Rint a driver who's got one of the most uh, interesting but also uh, tragic stories in Formula One history. Um, he drove for Lotus between 1969 and 1970, 19 races in the World Championship, six wins uh, for Lotus and the 1970 world title for Lotus as well. But of course, that was awarded posthumously because he was killed at the Italian Grand Prix. And then at number four, we've got his teammate Graham Hill, drove for Lotus between 1958 and 1959. And then again 67 to 1969 at Team Lotus and 1970 as a privateer. 60 World Championship races uh, for Lotus, four victories and the 1968 World title. So Kev, first of all, why are we grouping them together now and also why have you got them in that order?
3: We're grouping them together partly because they were teammates, but also because during their time together, um there is very little doubt that Jochen Rint was the the faster driver. Um and he was the coming, you know, the coming driver and I think by 1970 He's probably the only driver that you would put on the same level as Jackie Stewart at the top of the sport. I think that he's that good. So if this was a list of, um, yeah, if you were just going on on pace and performance, then Jochen Rinch should be ahead of Graham Hill. The reason that, that it's not that way, and also his World Championship win in 1970, I would suggest, was more convincing than Graham Hill's in 1968 the reason that i've gotten this way around though is completely based on the significance of uh, of the two drivers to the team. Jochen really had a very fractious relationship with Colin Chapman. He didn't really like the innovation with the Lotus 72. Um, he didn't really want to drive it even even at Monza when he was killed. He was still there were still arguments and debates about whether he wanted to you know should be driving the Lotus 49 rather than the 72. So he wasn't Whereas some of the uh, drivers higher up this list were very much Colin Chapman's drivers, Jochen wasn't wasn't like that, um, and uh, so that that plays into it. But the the real reason, the number one reason that Graham is of Yocum is that without Graham Hill and some of the other uh, senior team members, I'm not sure Team Lotus exists beyond the first round of the 1968 World Championship because uh, Jim Clark was his killed in a Formula Two race. And then, in quick quick order, Mike Spence is killed in a Lotus at the Indianapolis 500 during practice. And for some time, Colin Chapman goes AWOL. The team doesn't know whether it's folding or not, doesn't know if it's carrying on. And Graham Hill, I think, was a very uh, strong personality. And, um, you know, it, Clark's death was a little bit like, you know, Senna being killed in 1994. I think, you know, drivers know that um, motor racing is dangerous, and particularly then. But there's a feeling, oh, well, it won't happen to me. And... Everyone accepted at that time, or pretty much everyone, that, that Clark was the best driver. So if he could be killed in a racing car, there was a feeling that anybody could be at risk. Um and through all that, Graham Hill picked the team up and he won he won the Spanish Grand Prix. Um it was a fortunate win, but um the fact that it was there at all and he did the job, um and actually during nineteen sixty eight, when Lotus are going through all this um you know, all 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 this sort of intent you know, tension and sadness he brings the car home when it's falling to pieces there are a few times where the car's breaking he gets some points um and he probably isn't the best driver of 1968 but he deserves it on the basis of picking up lotus and making sure that the team that the team continues Colin Chapman comes back and they they kind of get on with it again so it's an, it's a remarkable remarkable parallel with with Damon Hill at Williams in 1994 after Senna was killed except for I don't think that there was any ever any question that Patrick Head and Frank Williams would give up after Senna was killed. Whereas Lotus, you know, I think it was, you yeah, know, it was, it, was, yeah, it was a much smaller team. Teams are smaller in those days. And Colin Chapman was its head. And, and Graham stepped up when he really needed to.
4: I think I would argue the, um, the other way around. Obviously, you know, it's, it's fairly hard. It's fairly hard to come back from the team Lotus might not have existed in, to, in terms of how much, you know, Gr- Graham Hill was sort of essential to picking him up after Clark and I also get that you know yes when they were teammates in 69 70 obviously Rint was demonstrably faster than Hill but then again at that time what Hill was what 38 39 40 and you know that is not a driver in in his prime even at that time Um, but if if you look at the numbers I suppose if you're going to argue them the other way around uh, Graham Hill four wins from 60 races for Lotus so that's uh, 6.7% which is the third lowest in, in this list so you've got Elio De Angelis and in his island on you know two two three percent then Graham Hill and then it's a big step up another 12% before you get to Senna who is, who's next on this list so in that um, whereas Rint uh, a third of a third of all races, pretty much, he won. So six from nineteen, thirty-two percent. If you round up, you know that's uh, what's that? Some quick maths. That's five times. That's a five. You know, a, a five times the hit rate of, of Hill. So I think, yeah, it comes back to that's why these are great pub chats because it's a nuance between you know, what. How how do you rank a driver? Is it purely on what they did in the cockpit or is it what else they bring to the team? And obviously Kev's gone for one factor. I, I would go for the other just to just to spice up this podcast a bit.
2: I also know that Kev would very much appreciate you rounding uh, those numbers up there when it comes to sub-editing our work, of course. Uh, But let's move on to the driver at number three. It's Emerson Fittipaldi. uh, Drove for Lotus between 1970 and 1973. 42 World Championship races uh, for the team. Nine victories and the 1972 World title. So, Kev, why is Fittipaldi at number three?
3: Yeah, I think this is one of those lists where the top three pick themselves, really. Um, So, yeah, Fittipaldi was left to... Uh, i mean he was thrust into the sort of number one role at lotus when when rint was killed um and he was only yeah he won he, he won what was only his fourth world championship grand prix start um uh, which was a race that also clinched rint the world title posthumously he then was there for 1971 when they had trouble getting the Lotus 72 working on the firestone slicks um worked diligently away at that and um Uh, He then he won won the world championship in 1972. Could have won it in 73. Um, So yeah, he 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 delivered titles. He contributed to to two constructors' titles. Took a driver's championship, um, and yeah, he's one of the great great figures
2: in in Lotus history. Really, Matt, how do you reflect on Fittipaldi in Lotus's history?
4: Yeah, this is this is the point in the list where I, I really sort of stood back because for the longest time I was expecting Fittipaldi to be, you know, in, in in second place, and then and then I don't want to spoil the the rest of the ranking on this list. so I won't say too much, but then I actually I've, I've come to agree on Kev, that, um, basic, basically on the factor that you know we last year rated the Lotus seventy two as the greatest Grand Prix car of all time, Fittipaldi wasn't part of building that team that won the title he he came in and and basically made the most of the brilliant tools he had at his disposal to 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 win the championship with Lotus obviously becoming the youngest world champion whereas I think uh, particularly the next driver on this list and the one in you know the, and and the the one who tops this list they they built championship title sort of teams and structures and and were much more of a part of that success and Fittipaldi who did a brilliant job but with you know what were clearly the best the best tools in the in Lotus 72. Uh, I can give you some more numbers though. It was nine wins from 42 starts for for Lotus which is a win percentage of 21.5% uh, uh, and that is, uh, where's that? That's about fourth on this list. So uh, Moss and Joachim Rint have a uh 33% hit rate there or thereabouts and then uh the driver in number one is thirty five percent. So uh so yeah f- uh fit probably about halfway.
2: Who could it possibly be at number one? Well let's reveal it now. Uh, Matt as you say obviously this is the-
4: <laughs> <laughs> can I say it's not as bad as when we did the Ferrari one and trying to not disclose Michael Schumacher was number one. <laughs> no
2: that I mean it is it is the, the challenge of doing this that you know just making discussing these lists in podcast form is it's like well it's sort of it's a natural progression of going down the order but how do you not talk about who's coming up next but anyway I think we've handled it uh, reasonably well I think that would be a fair assessment let's get on to the top two as ever we'll reveal them both together so Kev can explain why they're in a particular in that particular order at number two we spoke about him earlier Mario Andretti uh, Drove for Lotus between 1968 and 1969 in a limited programme and then fully in 1976 to 1980. 79 World Championship races for Lotus, 11 wins and of course the 1978 world title. And at number one, I think again, much as Matt said, much like Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari list, at number one, Jim Clark. Drove for Lotus between 1960 and 1968, 72 races in the World Championship, 25 victories and most famously, two world titles one in 1963 and one in 1965 so kev as you say in your piece how could it be anyone else having clark at number one was there ever a, a case of andretti being able to pip him on any front no nowhere near really i mean
3: i suppose you would say that mario was probably technically a know uh, yeah, be- better from a technical point of view i think he could probably explain what a racing car was doing better than clark certainly in clark's early days i think colin chapman did a lot of the translating if you like jim tells him what the car's doing and Colin works out what that means and what he then needs to do to the car whereas I think Mario was probably a bit further down the road of, of his understanding of what the car needed to the point actually where he pointed out to Colin Chapman that the ground effect car needed to be stiffer Colin ignored him and Patrick Head went and did what Lotus should have done with the FW07 but but so no it wasn't really close I mean Mario is ahead of Emerson to powder you should probably cover that off first because really, Matt Matt kind of alluded to it there. Yeah, he joined Lotus when they were in the doldrums. Really, '75 had been an atrocious season; they'd not won a race, um, and he he knuckled down to rebuild with them. Um, he won the 1976 Japanese Grand Prix finale, the famous Hunt Louder race um, in the wet. Um, but really, it's the work with the team developing the ground effect car. Had. Lotus not been running the development Cosworth DFV in 1977, he probably would have won the 77 world title in the Lotus 78. And then won, he did actually win the 1978 title. So he could easily have been a, a double world champion with Lotus. And he was an integral part of building that up. And actually there's a little nice little story when he first drove for Lotus in 1968 and put it on pole for his first Grand Prix. Um, I believe Colin Chapman said something along the lines of, you know, we found that, you know, we found, we found our next Jimmy. Yeah, you know, obviously that's the same year that, that Clark had been killed. So nice little, and you know he didn't stay around in that program. He came back in the seventies, but that's a nice little um, sort of link between the two. But it had to be Clark at number one. I mean, twenty five wins from seventy two races. Uh, Matt can tell us what the uh, what the percentage of that is. Um, two world titles could have been four. Um, could have won in. He was uh, two mechanical retirements away from winning the sixty two and sixty four titles. He probably should have won the sixty seven. Title as well, Lotus forty nine moved the goalpost so far, um, and he won four races. But it broke everywhere else, so he could have been a five time world champion in a more reliable era. He would have been probably a five time world champion. Um, he only drove for Lotus in world championship races, so you can't get more you can't get more intrinsically entwined with a with a team than that. Um, I think that even now people think Lotus people think you know Clark whether it's in a Lotus 25 Lotus 49 or even drifting a three wheeling a Lotus Cortina you know he's just he he just is Lotus an incredible relationship with um, with Colin Chapman to the detriment of some of the other drivers probably but at a time where that didn't really matter I think he probably trusted Chapman more than some of the other drivers on this list because sometimes Lotus cars were a bit fragile um but again that was another clark strength he had an incredible sensitivity and finesse of touch that meant that he could get to the end in races that would you know it, it, that would probably other drivers wouldn't be able to because the lotuses were a little bit fragile at times so from a lotus perspective it's hard to fault um fault clark other than what i just said in comparison to mari andretti he probably wasn't the most technically astute driver out there but it because of his relationship with colin chapman it it just and and his own speed it just didn't matter
2: Matt, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you don't disagree with Jim Clark being ahead of Mario Andretti.
4: Yeah, for the for the longest time, I wanted to, you know, rebel and find find sort of some get out clause, but um, there just there just isn't one really. And and when the testimony for for Jim Clark, you know, is coming from Jackie Stewart, Dario Franchitti, Colin Chapman, you know, there's the brilliant book as well by by David Tremaine. and. Kevin Turner is uh, is vowing <laughs> for him to be to be in first place. You know, I, I can't disagree with that. I'd be I'd be a fool to uh, the numbers back him up. Yeah. So uh, Kev, as Kev said, uh, 25 wins from from 72 races, uh, 34.7, 072 uh, um, percent, and for all the reasons as Kev has said, it's it's a it's a sort of uh, open and shut case for Clark being number one, and then uh, Andretti as well. I've already I've already sort of talked myself I can't I can't change Andretti's position I've already talked myself into why I didn't think Fittipaldi could climb any higher on this list. But just one one thing to note I think with Andretti is obviously um, you know when Williams went and copied the uh, the seventy nine but sort of did a plus version and went and win the title you know Andretti's success in in seventy eight remains the last uh, last time Lotus won won the world title.
3: Yeah, so we've actually got the person, the f- the first person to win an F1 world title in a Lotus, uh, and the last person in the uh, in the top two, which is kind of sort of bookends it nicely. And of course, we managed to get this far into talking about Clark without mentioning that he also happened to go and win the Indy 500 with Lotus as well. So I mean, just a remarkable, a remarkable driver. And yeah, as I say, this was the number one position in a lot of these lists was actually. Pretty easy, but as you mentioned uh, before you know i I'd say that perhaps Clark is even further ahead in the Lotus list than Mark Schumacher is in the Ferrari one It's that level of uh, it's not my decision it just it just is
2: indeed well a nice uh, a nice friendly note to end this particular podcast discussion on um, and as, as we said in the introduction this is the last episode in the series we're doing but Kev I thought I'd just give you the final word how much have you enjoyed putting this podcast series together.
3: No, it's been really good. No, I, th- I thank all the uh, thank you, Alex, for hosting um, and listen to me, you know, waffle on about uh, all my research and things and and, and our various guests. Uh, actually, I think we ended up with two guests, didn't we? Matt Q- oh Matt Q, um, uh Luke Smith, and Karun Chandock. So thanks very much for hosting. Thanks very much um, uh, to the listeners as well. But yeah, I'll have to. Um, if there are any other lists, one one other member of staff has already pitched a top ten arrows Formula One drivers, which is. Uh, is an interesting one. You could you could get quite carried away. I did look at other teams that I could do, um, but they just don't quite have the numbers. You know, um, the number of drives. I guess Brabham would be the other one. You could do a, a quite a good Brabham list, but perhaps we'll do that in uh, we'll perhaps do that as a second series at some point when um,
2: we've not got a load of F one testing and Grand Prix is about to start. Indeed, well I look forward to one day in the future uh, the top ten Haas drivers F one podcast. That'll be yeah, uh, that'll be that'll be very interesting. Um, but yes, might need a few years before we can do that. Big, exactly that, exactly that. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to be hosting this series, Kev. It's always lovely to uh, to listening to your reasoning and your logic, and it's always nice to hear Matt Q try and argue with you about anything. Really, it's always quite good fun. But there we shall leave it before he jumps in and uh, says anything awkward at the end. Uh, just before we go, just want to say thank you very much to everybody listening along, and we'll be back. Soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I
1: love the playoffs.
0: Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, you can get boosted deposits by 57% up to $1,000 on the Gambit DC app and up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost at Gambit DC retail locations. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer. Terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network.